listening to a recent sermon from a Covenant Church worship experience. For more information, you can find us online at covenantchurch.us. There is a conspiracy today for the hearts and minds of men. This message is from part three of our series, Conspiracy Number 4, where we are learning how to be rid of the simple things that have become idols in our lives. And now, here is our lead pastor, Travis Davenport. So if I haven't gotten to meet you, welcome. Um, And for those of you listening in online, we want to welcome you as well. This is our third week in our series called Conspiracy Number 4. And uh, in our opening passage we read this morning from Matthew 22, we see that Jesus is being approached by uh, an individual, a collection of individuals, most likely the religious elite, um, also known as the Pharisees. And I asked him this question. They say to him, what's the greatest commandment? that God gives or God expects his people to live by. The predominant commandment, if you had to sum it up in one important one, what is it? And without hesitation, Jesus says what? He says, well, the first and greatest is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Other parts of the gospel, uh, Matthew is is the one we're reading from here, but in in, uh, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they even quote Jesus as saying, with all your strength. So with everything that you have in you, love God. Once again, Jesus is basically just demonstrating the desire, the the supremacy, the absolute desire that God has to be the one and only God on the thrones, on the throne of our hearts. And and if we've learned anything over the last couple weeks, I think we could agree that we probably found that as humans, we have this innate ability to take the very good gifts and good things that God gives to us, right? And what do we do? We turn them into false gods. We turn them into false idols. We have this tendency to end up worshiping the created rather than the creator. And in week one of our conspiracy series, we talked about the conspiracy of pleasure. Turn to your neighbor and say, pleasure. (laughs) Turn to your other neighbor and say, success. That was week two. And today, we're going to talk about the conspiracy of love. The conspiracy of love. Because here's the truth. Here's the truth. We can be honest. This is the 11 o'clock service. We can be honest in here. (laughs) The fact of the matter is, we're obsessed with love, aren't we? I mean, we as Americans, as human beings, as a culture, whatever, we are obsessed with love. We love love. We love the idea of being in love. We love the idea of, of showing somebody love. We, we love the idea of somebody that we love loving us back. We, we just love love. It seems like every song on the radio is written about falling in love or getting somebody to, to love you or being drunk in love. Most <laughs> movies you watch talk about love or show somebody searching for love. Most books you read involve some type of, of love story or some love triangle there are websites that promise to help you find it. There are seminars that, that promise to help you make it better. There's, there's Dr. Phil who's built an empire on helping you fix it. And then there's therapists that are there to console you once you lose it. We love love. Um, I would say for me, this has not, been, this has not uh, been more apparent, any more apparent in my life <clears throat> than... I guess a couple months ago, um, when I took my, my little daughter, Stella, she's four, took her on a date, I take her on her monthly daddy-daughter date, we try to keep it low-key, usually hit up the local Chick-fil-A, catch a movie, and uh, yeah, get some popcorn, and, and this, this day was no exception, this date was no exception, 
And uh, so I, I brought her to the movies, and we saw a popular Disney movie. It was uh, very cold outside, and the, and the title of the movie reflected the state of not only the weather, but also my heart at that present time. <laughs> it was just frozen solid. You know what I'm saying, right? And uh, so I took my daughter, and she was up against the railing just staring the whole time. And, and we went home, and, and, and uh, you know, on the way home, we, there wasn't much, too much said, you know, she was just talking a little bit about the movie here and there, but as soon as we opened the door, she just sprinted upstairs. She ran upstairs, and she came down about five minutes later. She had changed her clothes, and she had put on her tiara, she put on her dress, her princess dress, and she put on these beads and these, like, these little high heel things that she has. I don't know, jellies? I don't know what they're called. Come on. <laughs> right? And uh, she's walking around. In the duration of the evening, this is what she does. I'm not going to demonstrate. I'm just going to tell you. She just twirls. She, you know what I'm talking about? She just twirled in her dress all around. The, just ah, There you go. That's the demonstration. I like that I get amens for that. That's fantastic. <laughs> and, and she's just singing. She's just like, let it go, right, all over the place, all over the place. And, and, and she runs over to me, and she's like, Daddy, Daddy. I'm like, yes, yeah. And she goes, do you think one day I'll meet my prince? And I said, of course. And she goes, I can't wait to be in love. That's what she said. She goes, I can't wait till I find my prince and I get on the back of the horse and, and ride to his castle. Do you think that'll happen, Daddy? And I said, of course it will. <laughs> That's the standard which, with which you should hold everyone you date, honey, right? And she, come, she came over, she, you know, we just can, continued this conversation. She just tell me how much she was excited to be in love. So, she's four, okay? She's four, right? And I said, well, honey, what, what is your prince going to look like? Right? And she goes, oh, I already know. I already know what he's going to look like. I've seen him. I said, what do you, you've seen him? What do you mean? Oh, I see him all the time. He's on, he's on TV. I said, oh, my gosh. Like, where is this going? She goes, I see him on TV. He's on those commercials. He's that green guy. I said, that, the, like the jolly green giant? Like, what are you, like, you're going to live in a house of green beans? Like, what are you talking about, right? And she's like, no, he's that green guy. He rides a motorcycle. And sometimes he rides a boat and his skin falls off. I'm like, have you been watching The Walking Dead? Like, what are you talking about, right? And Noah comes over and he goes, oh, I know exactly what she's talking about. Like that, that's Noah. I know exactly what she's talking about. I said, what? She goes, she's talking about that guy that's made out of money. And so I goes, yes, exactly, the green guy made out of money. I said, okay, hold, hold, hold on, hold on. Let me get this straight. So you're, you're expecting someday to fall in love with the prince who, A, is a prince, rides a horse, owns a castle, and is literally made out of money. And she goes, yes. And I said, okay, sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> we love love, even from such a young age. We love love. Here's a question I have for you today. Who is it that you say, I love you, too? Who do you love? Who is it that you love? A friend, a parent, a spouse, husband or wife, your children? I know the word love has been tossed around more than Tim Tebow in the NFL draft, but whoever it is, who is it that means the most to you in your life? Who is it? Who do you say that you love? The name that comes to mind actually may reveal um, the fact that you put your hope in someone other than God. That's my question. Have you put your hope in someone, in a relationship, in a person 
other than God is so, then it's become a false God in your life. Because it's true when we say whatever you place your hope in is ultimately a God in your life. Whatever you place your hope in is ultimately a God in your life. Amen? Amen? Amen. The more you preach back at me, the more I preach back at you. It's better for both of us. So I'm going to read this point again. Whatever you place your hope in is ultimately a God in your life. Amen? Amen. There you go. Could it be possible that a relationship with somebody else has replaced your relationship with Jesus? Is it possible? Have you placed your hope in the arms of a romantic love through a person other than Jesus? If so, I would tell you this. You have given power over to love in a way that it is not supposed to hold it. It's only supposed to be experienced in that power through Jesus Christ. And listen, I know this is a touchy issue. It's a very touchy issue. I mean, the last two weeks we, we spent time talking about touchy issues, pleasure. We talked about success. But I want you to know that those two things don't hold a candle to our need of wanting to be loved, right? I mean, we, we are born with this desire, this need, this deep-seated need to to want to be loved. And not only wanting to be loved, but also wanting to show affection. Also wanting to have our love received. Love deals with acceptance. Love deals with identity. Love deals with purpose, with security. Love can easily become a God in our life through this conspiracy. In a culture obsessed with love, man, this is a strong possibility. And before we jump into our text today, I just want to demonstrate for you how this conspiracy works really at any given stage of our life. This is why this conspiracy of romantic love is so dangerous, because it's applicable at any stage of our life. I already told you the story about my baby girl, Steli, right? But it's applicable as we become a teenager or even a tweenager, right? You're not exactly a teenager, but you still get marketed too heavily and carry our economy. Yes, you're a tweenager, okay? You're a tween. Every movie comes out for you, every book, right? Twilight, okay. Anyway, so young adults, tweens, teens, right? Here's the fact of the matter. Maybe more than anybody, you are bombarded with images of love. Bombarded with images of romantic love. And not only that, you are encouraged to pursue romantic love, much to the chagrin of your parents, right? Because what do we see, and I could talk about this for a long time, but what do we see um, depicted in movies and in books, right? Parents just don't understand, right? Am I right? Parents don't get it. I'm in love. I'm in love. I'm in love. I don't care who knows it, right? I just, I'm in love, right? My parents don't get it. And then you fall in love and you run away and, and you know, all this kind of stuff happens. And in the end, the parents come around like, oh, I guess he's not that bad of a guy, right? That's how you're being bombarded with this conspiracy of love. But here's the truth. As a young adult, man, it's, it's, we've all been there. Like, we've all been there. Like, we were younger at some point, I know for some of us, it's, it's more difficult to see than others. But at some point in our lives, all of us were teenagers, right? And so we understand that during that time period, there are massive physical, emotional, mental, and hormonal changes that are taking place at such a rapid pace that if we're not careful, they can create a cocktail of destruction that can devastate our lives. Amen? I mean, there's nothing wrong with you. Don't, 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 don't hear me say that like, what, I'm mental? No, that's not what I'm saying. You're just, your brain is starting to grow and function as an adult. It's making the crossover from baby to adult, right? And your body is, like some of you, your arms are dragging the ground, right? You know what I'm saying? Like your arms grew longer than the rest of your body, right? You know what I'm saying? Like some of you have on full, like full on beards and you're 13. I can't grow a beard, 
I'm a 32-year-old, but I'm just saying, like, your hormones are taking over. I shouldn't have confessed that just now. <laughs> Can we edit that out of the podcast? Yeah? Okay, thanks. Um, you know what I'm saying, though, right? And so you take all these uh, physical, mental, hormonal ch- uh, changes, emotional changes that are happening, and you add into it, like, the pursuit of romantic love is okay, it's good. You have a very dangerous situation. This is the conspiracy of love. Now, moving on into your 20s, maybe your 30s or 40s, if you've never been married, what happens? What happens if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, beyond, and you've never been married? Well, uh, when, you've made the love, when you've made love a God, is that you begin to feel like what? Something's wrong with you, right? If you've made God or love a God in your life, then when you're single, you think, well, something's wrong with me. You start to feel an emptiness. You start to look and say, like, well, there's those people. Like, they're in love, and there's that couple, and they're in love, and those two of the weirdest people I've ever met in my life. It, but at least they found each other, and they, like, can, like, do weird things together. Like, you know, like, what in the world? Why am I? What's wrong with me? Why am I, I feel so empty? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? We have this emptiness. We're not like everybody else because we're not experiencing romantic love. This drives us. This can drive us to depression. It can drive us to loneliness. And drive us to have a strained relationship at best with Jesus Christ. We give love a godlike power. This is the conspiracy of love. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe you're a divorced individual, and maybe you're someone who is loved and lost. And, and maybe now the God of love has left you feeling like you're always living in the past. You know what I'm saying? You're always looking behind you. I would do that differently. I would do this differently. I would do that differently. And maybe you feel like you've been branded a failure. If not by society, then maybe church. And if not by church, most likely a Christian. And so after a while, what this God of love does to you is that it drives you to learn some coping mechanisms to fill the void of your life. And so now all of a sudden you've begun to overeat or now all of a sudden you begin to, to drink more than you should or, or now all of a sudden you begin to, to see things that you shouldn't be looking at and filling this void in your life because at least when that's there, you're not thinking about what happened and the love that, lo- that you lost. And that's the God of love. That's the conspiracy of love. You're like, okay, good. I'm not on any of those lists. I'm not a teenager. I'm not single. I'm not divorced. I'm good. No, you're not. You're married. <laughs> that, that had a double meaning. All right. Now, married people, you may have found the love of your life, right? And you're like squeezing their hand right now. You're like, oh, yeah, baby. You're the love of my life, right? right? You're the love of my life, right? But here's my question. And this is a serious question, but here's the question. Are you looking to your spouse to provide for you what only God can provide? Are you looking to your spouse to provide for you what only God can provide? Listen to me this morning. If you're constantly fighting, if you are never forgiving, if you're always raising expectations higher and higher and higher, and if this saying is prevalent in your house, if you love me, then you will fill in the blank. If you loved me, then you would fill in the blank. If this is how your marriage sounds, then maybe you have made love a God. Yes, we should look to our spouse for security. Yes, we should look to our spouse spouse for satisfaction. But our spouse, our husband, our wife cannot be the ultimate means to our satisfaction. Amen? Amen? Our spouse cannot be the ultimate means to our security. Anytime we place that ultimate security, ultimate peace, ultimate hope, ultimate anything in a person, it will come up futile. They 
will fail. You are putting unrealistic expectations on your husband, wife, when you expect him to fulfill you in a way that God can only fulfill you. Period. You are placing unrealistic expectations, husband, on your wife when you do the same. Have you placed your security? Have you placed your satisfaction in your husband, your wife alone? This is something that must come from God and God alone. And this is a conspiracy of love. So you can see how this conspiracy has its grip on our society in such a manner that it is deep at every stage of our life. And it seems like a good thing. It seems like a good thing because love is a good gift from God. But when we take love and we place it over God, we begin worshiping the created rather than the creator, and it becomes a false idol. Now, let's get to work. I want you to jump into Genesis chapter 29 with me today. And I I, I literally want to read you this story in Scripture that probably belongs more on, like, some soap opera on Telemundo. Seriously, it is... It's just straight bananas. It's just, it's just crazy. It's just ridiculous. It's awesome. Um, it's a love story, just while you're opening up, turning on, or looking up, whatever. It's a love story that takes a most unexpected turn and a twist. It begins with Abraham's son, Abraham's grandson, rather, Jacob. Jacob falls in love with a young woman named Rachel. Genesis 29, verse 16. Here we go. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Pause. Now, Jacob, Jacob falls in love with Rachel, and he makes a deal with her dad, her father Laban. He says, I'll work for you for seven years if I can have your daughter's hand in marriage. This dude, we can, we can honestly say, is smitten, Right? He agrees to work seven years to marry a girl. It's crazy. But the crazier part is this. We also read in the Bible about Rachel. Rachel, the Bible describes her as beautiful in form and appearance. Rachel has an older sister named Leah, to which the Bible only describes as having weak eyes. Now, don't get me wrong. It's an honor. It's a privilege to be mentioned in Scripture at all. But if I'm only going to get mentioned in Scripture one time, and it's going to say, he was a man of short stature and very portly. Like, leave me out. <laughs> Thank you, God, but no thanks. Just leave me out of the holy book, right? Like, it's there. You can't change it. It's God's word. You have weak eyes. This is the equivalent of a friend coming to you and be like, dude, I got the perfect girl for you. Perfect. Oh, yeah, what's she like? Oh, dude, she's just, she's got beautiful eyes. Okay, Any, anything else that's beautiful on her? Like, is that about, the? oh, beautiful, oh, yeah, she's got a great personality, too. We know what that is code for. She's busted. I mean, she's not attractive, right? That's what it means. And so you guys, uh, so you girls, don't, don't be, don't, don't pretend like you're better than me. You do the same thing. You know if someone's ugly, you play the personality card. It's the only thing they have going for them. Come on. Okay, you can stutter your laugh all you want. It's true. You women do the same thing. Oh, girl, I got the perfect guy for you. Oh, really? What's he like? He's really funny. Oh, so he's obese. Okay, thank you. Thank you. It's truth. We have to compensate. It's just what it is. 
This is the biblical of equivalent of the Bible saying, like, she had weak eyes. Uh, thank you very much. Let's keep going. This is great. Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Okay, pause. Can I just, can I just read that portion again? Probably the way it deserves to be read. Can I just read this? Look at this. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. But they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Is this not the most romantic verse in all of Scripture? I mean, seriously, Jacob is a stud. He serves out, first off, he voluntarily says, like, girl, you're so good, I served seven years just to get you, right? That's pretty good. But then he, he goes to her, <laughs> I love this, and he goes to her and, and he literally says, like, you know, he walks up, he's got the swagger, you know, he's like, girl, I served seven years for you, but it only seemed like days, right? Like, that's how he said it. And she's like, oh, I love you, right? Amazing. This should be included, like, in the extended DVD cut of the notebook. That's how romantic and beautiful. Like, did I mention, like, alternate versions of Scripture talk about, like, he was lifting her up in the rain in a boat in the middle of a, you know, lake, and after he'd been to war? Okay. This is beautiful. This is an amazing this Jacob, he's like blowing my mind. He's, he's, he's just a poet. He's like a modern-day Jane Austen. He's just like amazing, right? He's just a wordsmith. Let's see what other beautiful, delicate, soft, kind, loving poetry Jacob has for Rachel. Verse 21, we read this. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Yeah, he's a normal guy. He's a normal guy after all. That doesn't sound as romantic. And you're like, hold on, I need to hermeneutically examine this passage. What does that actually... No, it means exactly what you think that means. Those letters are 14 feet tall. If you can't figure that out... Exactly. But I mean, listen, don't be, too, like, don't be too hard on this guy. It's been seven years. Seven years, man, right? I mean... That's a long engagement. Let's just put it that way. It's a long engagement. But listen, here's where it gets crazy. Here's where, here's where it gets crazy. Listen to this. All of a sudden, verse 22, 23, 25, don't you dare read ahead. Don't you dare. Listen to this. Verse 22, this is the Bible. So Laban gathered up all together, all the people of the place, and he made a feast. They're getting married. Verse 23, but in the evening he took his daughter Leah, and, oh, yeah, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Does that mean it means the same thing? Verse 25. <laughs> Meaning didn't change. Verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to her, what in the world? Right? It doesn't really say that. Jacob said to her, Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? Uh, Laban pulls an old, like, switcheroo on Jacob here. And after a long night of feasting and partying, maybe Jacob's a little tipsy from the party. Maybe it's dark, like real dark out. I don't know. But he goes in and solidifies and consummates his marriage with Leah. Um, just pause for a minute. Can, can you imagine? Can you just imagine the next morning? Like waking up and you're like, ah. Roll over and there's just old weak eyes staring you in the face. <laughs> Good morning, Jacob. Right? <laughs> what? Man, I hope you can cook at least, right? I mean, oh. 
You just picture him just getting up out of bed, running out and be like, dude, what are you doing to me? You're killing me here, right? Crazy. I told you it was crazy. I told you it was crazy. Ugh. Now, if you keep reading on in this story, you'll actually see that Jacob goes on to additionally marry Rachel. Now, he keeps Leah as a wife, but he additionally marries Rachel. Why? Because he's in love with her. And now you've got just crazy drama. I mean, just like sign it up for a show on Bravo. It's just a reality show that everyone would want to watch. It's crazy. Sister wives. It's insane, right? And this thing just becomes a huge mess. But here's the truth. This is not necessarily a story that revolves around Rachel or around Jacob. The main thrust, the main emphasis of this story revolves around Leah and this conspiracy of love that she falls into, this idolatry of love. See, Leah loves her husband. She's in love with Jacob. Now, Jacob's not in love with her. He's married to her, but he's not in love with her. But Leah is in love with her husband, and she wants more than anything else for him to love her. And that's good. That's all well and good. That's all fine. But here's where it takes a wrong turn. Her love for him becomes, uh, rather, she becomes consumed with her love for him. And she becomes consumed with hoping and dreaming of the day that Jacob will love her. She becomes consumed to her very core thus making love an idol, thus making love a god, thus making uh, the conspiracy of love a function in her life. Look at this sad portion of Scripture, Genesis 29. I would encourage you, verse 32 through 34, I would encourage you, listen to the pain in this woman's voice. Listen for it. Verse 32 says, And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. Verse 33. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. She named him Levi. Basically, the only thing that Leah has going for her is that she is able to easily conceive and give birth to children, while Scripture indicates that Rachel has a difficult time becoming pregnant. And so with every child, with every birth to Leah, Leah thinks, maybe now my husband will notice me. Maybe now my husband will love me. Maybe now my husband will will see that I exist. I'm giving him children. I'm showing him my love because I'm giving him babies. Maybe now he'll see me. Maybe now he'll love me. And every time a child comes along, she says, maybe now we can have a real marriage. Finally, finally. See, what she wanted more than anything else, even more than God, was to feel loved. You sense her pain in the Scripture? You sense her hurt? It's a question. Do you see yourself in this story? Do you see yourself in this story as Leah? And I'm not talking about what you look like or, or anything like that. I'm just saying, have you put yourself in a position where you are constantly having to prove your love to an individual to continue that relationship? Have you been in a relationship like that? Are you in a relationship like that where the other person says, prove your love to me? Prove that you love me, and then I'll love you back. 
I'll give you a little bread, uh, uh, like a breadcrumb trail of love. And then finally, if you pick it all up and you do what I want with it and you do act how I want, then I will give you my love. Earn my love. You ever been in a relationship like that? That's a relationship that has nothing to do with love. You understand that, right? That has everything to do with power and manipulation. But that's not love. That is not love. And yet this is what Leah is doing. She's saying, maybe, maybe I can earn his love. Every child that God gives me, maybe now he'll see me. And maybe now he'll love me. She is fully consumed with this conspiracy of love. And here's the thing about love. Here's the thing about the the God of love. While the God of love is busy demanding demonstration, because keep in mind, the God of love, the conspiracy of love, false love, always demands you to show it. Show me how much you love me. Show me. Demonstrate. Get busy demonstrating. And then if you do the demonstration good enough, I'll give you my love. While the God of love is busy demanding demonstration, the king of love is busy demonstrating himself. Man, think about that. While the God of love is busy demanding demonstration, the king of love is busy demonstrating. See, the conspiracy of love is dependent on you working. The conspiracy of love is is, is contingent upon you proving your love. And that's what this means. This means this. Don't mess up or that love is gone. Don't fall. It's gone. Don't screw up. Don't drop the ball or that love is gone gone have you been there before are you there now have you done that to someone else a love that is fleeting can i tell you how jesus's love works though can i just remind you a little bit about how the king of love works he doesn't demand demonstration he is the one who demonstrates listen to this verse one of my favorite verses in the bible this should get us excited a little bit romans chapter 5 verse 8 it says this but god shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners christ died for us god doesn't demand demonstration he says while you were still sinning i decided i would demonstrate for you in the midst of your failure i chose then to say i love you to demonstrate my love for you do you know why this is i'll tell you why It's because Jesus' love is not based on you. Jesus' love is based on himself. Jesus' love is not based on you. It's not contingent upon you. It's not contingent even on whether you decide to ever love him. Jesus loves you. You know that. I don't know if I'm down with this. I don't know. Jesus loves you. In the midst of your failure, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your godlessness and wickedness, God said, I love you so much, I'm going to demonstrate my love for you and send my son, Jesus Christ, to die for you as a ransom to purchase that love that I will hold for you. Jesus loves you. And it's not a love that's based on you, it's a love that's based on himself. And this church is monumentally huge. This is incredibly Uh, life-changing and monumentally humongous because it means this. It means this. When you do fall, when you do fail, Jesus doesn't abandon you. Jesus doesn't leave you. Jesus doesn't forsake you. You know, instead what happens? Instead, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to leave you. Instead, I'll tell you this. We'll get through this. I'm here for you. 
We can do this together. But I'll tell you this much, I'm not letting you go. I started this love, I will continue this love, and I am strong enough to finish out this love with or without you because it's on me. My love for you is not dependent on you, it's dependent on me. So don't give up. Just keep walking, keep pressing in, keep confessing, but don't give up. Jesus says repeatedly in Scripture, I'll heal you. I won't let go, I won't leave you. Let me ask you, is there anyone, church, that can condemn you? As a follower of Christ, is there anyone who can bring a charge against you? What charge could they even bring? Jesus says, if I don't condemn you, then how could anyone condemn you? What court of law could they even bring that charge in? I own everything. In your mind, and I own you, what charge could anyone bring against you? I formed you in your mother's womb. Those dreams that you have, I put them there. Those desires that you have, I put them there. Those passions, I put them there. I'm with you always. And church, let me ask you, why does Jesus say this? Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus continue to strive with us? Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves us. That's why. And I know it's weird, right? It, it, this, this kind of love doesn't really make sense to us. What we're used to have, we're used to having to to earn love. We're used to having to to to, to earn love, to ha- to de- demonstrate our love, to receive love in return. And I think somehow we think that that God doesn't really see us for all that we are. That maybe God doesn't really 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 know about our innermost thoughts or or what we've done, really truly because. If he did, if he knew how we were really going to be, that he wouldn't have gone to the cross for us. Do you ever think that way? Like, we'll confess sin. We'll, we'll, we'll confess little things. But if God really knew the depth of depravity and the depth of the darkness, the, of the thoughts that enter your mind and some of the things that you've done or we've done, you've got to wonder, like, does God really... Does God really, he can't know that. Does God really know that? Because if he really knew that, I, I don't think he would have gone to the cross for me. But listen to me. Listen to me. Here's the hope. God knew you were going to be messy. Jesus Christ knew that you were going to be messy. Jesus knows that you're going to screw up often. Jesus knows that you were, Jesus knew that you were going to fall prey to some of the conspiracies and want your heart and mind. But listen to me, Christian. That's what the cross is all about. That's exactly what the cross is all about. It's the whole point. The point of the cross is that you're going to fail. The point of the cross is is that you're going to fall. You're going to stumble. And you're going to fall and you're going to feel dirty and you're going to feel awkward. See, the whole point of the cross of Christ is that there be this mighty picture of Christ and His love and His pursuit of you. Yes, the cross is necessary, Because it stands as a monument to show us just how far God was willing to go to demonstrate His love for us. God loves us. And He demonstrated it by sending His Son, Jesus, to die. And He says, I knew it was going to be messy. My death for you was messy. This love I have for you, this love you have for me is going to be messy. God has ordered our lives in such a way that he is to be our most 
significant relationship. And I'll tell you what, when you get that right, the relationship with your spouse, the relationship with your children, the relationship with your parents, your relationship with your friends, just begins to fall in line. When you get the first one right, the rest just begin to fall in line. And listen, I, want, I, want, I just want to say this. If you're experiencing frustration in some of your key relationships today, I would say to check and see if you made those relationships an idol over Christ. And if you have, that's probably why you're sensing so much frustration. Why? Because God does not bless his competition. He ain't sitting on the throne with your girl. He's not. But you don't understand, she's so, she's, you know, the last girl I dated had weak eyes. This one, she's just so much. Jesus does not share his throne with anyone including your girl, including your boyfriend, including your mom, including your dad, especially your children. Jesus will not share his throne with anyone. And and so listen, before you go consult Dr. Phil, before you buy another self-help marriage book, how about this? Try giving your attention to making Jesus your greatest affection and just see what happens. Just see what happens. Just just, just see. Just, Just see what happens. Now, back to our story. Leah was desperate to find satisfaction from the God of romantic love. Literally, her whole world revolves around it. Even giving birth revolved around winning over her husband. She says, maybe now my husband will notice me. Maybe now he will love me. But here's the truth. It just never happened. It never. It never happened. But then we read this verse. Look at this verse, Genesis 29, 35. Speaking of Leah... And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time. Would you just look at your neighbor and say the words, this time. I I love when scripture gives us these little impacting statements, right? This is an impactful statement. She just says, this time. I know what I've done all these other times, but now here where I stand, this time. This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. What happened? Leah finally stopped looking to her husband for the things that only God could give her. And she turned to God, and she said, This time I will praise you. This time I will praise my Lord. And she names her son Judah, which literally means praise in the Hebrew language. It's interesting. Leah is rejected by her father. She's tricked, right? She, she is a part of that plan, that ploy. She's rejected by him. She's rejected by her husband. But when she finally stops expecting them to meet her needs and turns to God, what is she able to do? Praise God. When she finally stops trying to get all of her satisfaction and all of her security and all of her identity from people and rather turns to God, she gains the ability to actually praise God. I know some of you this morning walk in and you are drawing your identity from a relationship. You're drawing your identity from a relationship you want to be in. And because of that, when you come into church, oftentimes, oftentimes, This becomes a religious experience for you. Just a religious experience for you. Listen, I never want this to be a religious experience. I want this to be a place where you experience Jesus Christ. 
just straight up. It needs to be a place where you experience the power and the moving and the healing and the sense of Jesus and the Holy Spirit moving. But I'm letting you know that you are cutting that off when you put other people above God. And so you come in here and you don't truly have the ability to praise God. Why? Because you're not really knowing how to praise God. You're praising people. You're pulling your identity, your satisfaction, your everything from people. And God says, man, that's me. I want to I be that person. I want to be the only one on your heart. That's me. And when we turn away from drawing all this stuff from people and rather turn to God, Leah, us, we, as a church, we are finally able to praise God. Why? Because it changes the way we view Listening to this message from part three of our series, Conspiracy Number Four at Covenant Church. We hope you've been encouraged by what you've heard today. If you need prayer or just want to tell us your story, please reach out to us at mystory@covenantchurch.us and connect with us on social media at facebook.com/slash to seek and save and twitter.com/slash to seek and save.